Amen. All right. Well, hey, good morning, Salem. <clears throat> Boy, good to see you guys. Lots to celebrate today. So good to see uh, new faces, old faces, uh, familiar faces, all those things. So uh, my name is Seth. If we've never met, I'm one of the pastors uh, here uh, at Salem. And uh, today is a communion Sunday, if you didn't know. Uh, you, one way that you can tell, uh, if you take a close enough look, I have purple all down my shirt. So... <laughs> Rookie mistake, uh, should not wear white on Communion Sunday, so should have worn purple, which I do have, and I didn't do it, so. Um, hey, how many of you guys um, like Oreos? Better question, how many of you don't like Oreos? Oh, there's a few of you, okay, all right, that's okay, that's okay, not, nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Oreos are so good. Hey, so about 10 years ago, um, I, um, my, my wife and I were living in Colorado, and we were in student ministry at the time, and there was a kid in our youth group whose name was Grant. Grant is a wonderful, wonderful uh, young man, uh, recently got married, is now a pilot, um, which is terrifying to me, but he is. Um, and uh, Grant, at the time, uh, in his younger years, actually lost his dad. And so it was a very hard uh, time in his life as he was seeking to find some guys who could kind of step in and fill some of that role. And by God's grace, God allowed uh, me to step into that a little bit, which was awesome. And we built a great relationship. And so Grant spent a lot of time at our house. He also spent a lot of time eating our Oreos. <laughs> Not his Oreos. Hours. I mean, at some point, I think we went through about four boxes, and I was like, this guy needs to replace our Oreos. Like, we're generous people, but come on, <laughs> four boxes, okay? So one day, he calls me and says, hey, can I come over? I'd love to hang out. I said, absolutely. Come on over. Um, and, uh, and I said, but dude, here's the deal. On your way, you need to uh, grab some double-stuffed Oreos. <clears throat> because I was out, and I wanted some. <laughs> And so really it was selfish, but you know, really I thought, hey, this could be something we do together. It's kind of our pastime as we watch sports and eat Oreos. Um, and, uh, and so he, he says, sure, I'm on my way. He gets in the car, he stops at the grocery store, comes over, uh, and he walks in the door and he hands me the Oreos. And I, at this point, am ready for Oreos. I'm, I'm, I'm craving them. And so I open them up, and here's what I find. Two rows are entirely gone. <laughs> Just to put this in the con, it's not like a 20-minute drive, okay? This is a four-minute drive <laughs> from the grocery store to our home where he stopped. He ate two rows, and if you don't know, how many rows are there? Three. How many were left? One. Oreos are so good. They are, they are just tasty. They are just really, really good. Um, and, and, you know, this is kind of one of the things that uh, people talk about is that there's different ways to eat Oreos. Now, listen, I'm not going to talk through that this morning. That's not, that's not going to be helpful. But you can talk about your friends with your family. What's the best way to eat Oreos? Um, but here's the, here's the truth is that there are, there are really good ways to eat Oreos. There are also some not so good ways to eat Oreos. How many of you guys uh, have heard of TikTok? Okay, TikTok is a social media platform of sorts. I still know, I'm still not sure if I fully understand it. Um, but there is a group of people out there, I don't know who they are or how old they are, uh, but who are starting a trend uh, that they eat Oreos, have you heard this, with salsa. Right? That's what I said. 
right? That's what I said. And somehow the sweet and salty are supposed to balance out. I, mm, no, that's not good. How many of you would do that? How many of you would try it? Great. There's at least one of you. Uh, next week, there will be Oreos and salsa in the foyer. I want to see you do it. And we will video it, and we will post it to Facebook. But we'll have a trash can handy, just in case. Um, there is a good way to eat Oreos, and there's not a, there are some not-so-good ways to eat Oreos. And like, what in the world does this have to do with risking church, okay? Let me tell you. So we've been in this series called Risking Church, coming out of COVID, right? Like, we are platformed and ready as people, I mean, you can hear the chatter in the foyer. Like, people are just, just going because we we're so excited to be together with people. And so we think, wow, what a great opportunity for us to, to really think about how we build community intentionally uh, around Jesus, right? And so that's, this is our opportunity. So we started this, this series called Risking Church. Um, and we started with the kind of the biblical theology approach, which is really just what is the story of the Bible? Who is God and, and what is he doing in the, in the world right, from beginning to end of the story? And so we started with this idea of community resting in God himself, right? You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit for all time, perfect unity, perfect love. It's, it's incredible. We can't explain it, Right. And that's where, that's where community comes from. And so we're designed in the image of God. We long for community. We're wired for it. We're made for it. And yet when sin enters into the world, right, things get bad and chaos schemes everything, right? It's this broken world. And fortunately, Jesus enters into the story later on and he makes things right. But here's the problem is that we now live in this tension of a world that is right that's not right, <laughs> Or a not right world, that's right, right? And so we're, we're constantly in this tension uh, experiencing. And so we go, how, do we, how in the world do we build intentional community uh, in, in, this, in this broken world? Things are somewhat made right. Jesus has already laid the foundation for that. But the world is still a mess. Uh, we as humans are still a mess. How do we build intentional community? And so we started with this idea, as we enter through the doors, what does intentional community look like? My hope and dream for Salem would be that as you enter through the doors of this church and as you meet people, or if you see somebody from Salem uh, at the grocery store or at a local school, um, you know, like a play or something, you see somebody outside the walls, is that our initial reaction is that those people are for me that we're in this together, and that Jesus is the center of that, but that we are in this thing called life together. And it's rooted in the gospel and the forgiveness of sins, right, by grace through faith. And, and so we are for each other. And yet, oftentimes in life, we find or feel the opposite, that people might be against us, not for us. And that's not what we hope for. It's not what we long for here at Salem. In fact, as you enter through the doors of the church, you know, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the power of words in Proverbs 18. And so as soon as you enter into the doors, what do we do? We start using our mouth and we talk to people, we connect. And we talked about this idea or asked this question, what if every single word that we said in a given day was either moving us towards life or moving us towards death? There's no words in the middle. There's no words that are just mediocre, status quo. Every word is either moving us towards life or moving us towards death. And so we want to be a, a community who, who uses our words intentionally, right? It's not to say that we just want a foyer of silent people. They're like, we're afraid of saying words. No, we use them encouragingly to bring life into people's life, right? And that's true. But as we do that, as we begin to uh, talk to each other, what we're initially, or kind of, I guess I was thinking about this, is that in some sense what words do is like getting a tour of somebody's home. Getting, the, getting a tour of somebody's home. 
So as you walk through somebody's home, as they're opening up doors, right? They're opening up doors. They show you what's behind the door, right? And that's kind of what the words do, is we begin to see what's behind all of those doors. And some of the doors in our homes are open because we've cleaned them, right? You know this. You're like, I just did that yesterday. We had people over. But there's also doors in your home that you keep shut. You're like, oh, that's just the closet. You don't want to see what's in there. Or sometimes people, they open the door and they say, hey, just forgive the mess. We haven't cleaned in a while, right? Words are like getting a tour of somebody's life. You're opening up the doors. And the reality is that every single time you open up a door, you don't really know what's going to be behind it. And oftentimes, you're going to find that what's behind these doors is the idea of brokenness. As we find guilt and shame that's been building up for years, depression, all of these things that are just really, really hard, stories, words that have been said that are hurtful, that have been shaping my identity, this brokenness in my life, and it's really hard. But last week we looked at Jesus and the Good Samaritan, and what he's doing is he's telling us a story about a man who's not afraid of the brokenness. And instead of stepping around the man or stepping over the man, is maybe a better way to think about it, he says, here's here's what we want you to do. We want you to gravitate to the brokenness. Not just to love God with this, but to love God with my hands and my feet, right? To love others. Gravitate to the brokenness. And so as you hear these things, you go, wow, like this sounds like, this is a great community. I want to be a part of this church, right? This sounds awesome. Everybody's still here. (laughs) Here's the problem, (laughs) is that inevitably, you have to talk about sin, (laughs) Because you will open up doors, and at some point, you will open up a door where you come face to face with somebody else's sin. And it's a sticky, and it's not the most exciting thing to preach on, <laughs> but it's real. And in order for us to risk church, to understand what it means to be a community, we need to understand the way that sin plays a part in all of our lives, because we all have it. And so then in each of us, I think there's this begging question Because I know that I have sin, here's what I want to know, and I'm guessing what you want to know. How will people respond when they find out about my sin? That's the question. Because in order to engage in authentic, real, life-giving community the way that God has designed us to, sin is going to be a part of it. Right? It's naturally going to be a part of it. And we want to know how to handle that. And it's not just for pastors, right? That's not like why I get paid. It's like, here, here you go. You just deal with it. No, this is, this, is, this is us. This is us together as a community wrestling through this difficult, challenging topic. And the reality is, just like Oreos, there's a good way, a good way to handle sin in the church. There's also some not good ways some not-so-good ways to deal with sin in the church. And so we want to talk about those this morning uh, and hopefully spur us towards the good ways. Okay, so we're going to be in, in Galatians chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible, I invite you to uh, open it up and to turn, uh, to turn there. Uh, Galatians is a letter. Uh, it's written by a guy named Paul, and uh, he wrote it to a group of people in the area, the province of Galatia, hence Galatians. These are a group of people that are struggling through their identity. People are challenging them, wrestling with all sorts of 
things that they need to add to their faith or do or not do, right? And what Paul is going to talk about here is just, gosh, let's look at this community. Let's look at how this community responds to each other, how we should respond when sin is at the forefront, when we find a sin in a particular person, a particular group, whatever it is. And what Paul's going to do is in these first five verses, he breaks it into this very simple pattern. It's, it's, even though it's simple, it's going to be very hard for us maybe at times to digest. But simple is this. He starts with you, and then he goes to me, and then he goes to we, and then he goes back to me. Okay, so the first one, what Paul's going to say is that if any single person in this church is caught in sin, which by the way, is every single person in this room. So we're not isolating anybody. We're just saying all of us have sin. So if there's sin in your life, this is what we're saying. This is our commitment to you, which is really our commitment to everyone. Okay, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It says, brothers, if anyone, not just someone, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. I love the way that Paul starts this, right? He's going to talk about some hard stuff here. And what he starts with is the idea of community, brothers and sisters. Now, if, like, just so you know, this is a generic term, uh, which really includes everybody. So uh, if we're not leaving out the ladies or the sisters, any of that stuff, right? It's a generic term for the entire community, brothers, sisters, boys, girls, men, women, all that, right? And so he's really including everybody, 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 okay? But if anyone is caught in a transgression, now our tendency when we read this text is to want to go right to the transgression. What's the sin? What is it? What is it? What is it? How do we deal with it? Well, hang on, let's stop. Let's, let's talk about the people first. Before we do that, let's talk about the people. Because who does Paul, who is he calling out here? Who is he bringing to the forefront? He says, these are the people that should be restoring, the people who are spiritual. spiritual. Those who are spiritual are the people who ought to be doing this process of restoration. Okay, what does he mean by this? What is, what is a spiritual people? Because immediately, in my mind, I go back to middle school basketball. And you have the A squad, and then you have the sus squad, the B squad, because I wasn't a great, great at basketball. And so we tend to think in terms of greaters and lessers, those who are more spiritual and those who are less spiritual. And that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about in this space is he's talking about people who are ultimately led by the Spirit, the people who are staying in step, walking with, living by, and being led by the Spirit. These are the people that he's calling to the forefront to bring about this process of restoration, Okay? But it's really important that we understand what this process of restoration is. How is it that they're supposed to do this? Is we're supposed to restore in a spirit of gentleness, right? This is so, so important, right? In a spirit of gentleness. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, I did not get great response to the first service to this question. Uh, how many of you are fishermen or fisherwomen? Like fishing? Okay, a few of you. I just thought there'd be more. I don't know what happened there, so I apologize. I, did, I stereotyped. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to classify you. Um, if you're like a fisherman, if you like fishing, if you know anything about fishing, use a tackle box, right? Um, and like in, uh, in that tackle box is a whole uh, bunch of stuff, right? And as you're searching through the bottom, as you're, as you're perusing, trying to find whatever it is that you need, uh, sometimes you will find at the bottom is this massive, tangled mess of fishing line. How many, how many of you would take the time to untangle that knot? Probably, probably none, right? Because line is cheap. Line is easy, right? So what do we do? Is just bring a knife, we cut it out, and we start over, and we move on, right? That's the way that we oftentimes do it. In the New Testament times, 
Other than the boat, okay, just to be clear, other than the boat, what's the most important tool for a fisherman? Their net, right? Is a net cheap? Can you just replace it like fishing line? No. So when a, when a net gets tangled, when it gets um, frayed or broken, what you need to do is that you enter into this net and you need to, with gentle mending, begin to pull and to, and to unwind and to get the tangledness out. And if there's ripped pieces, we repair. That's what the word restore here means. It's this idea of mending nets. It's mending with gentleness your most important tool. Do you see what he's saying, right? We're to enter in with the spirit of gentleness, right? Not, not with the spirit of cutting, not with the spirit of that, right? With the spirit of gentleness. We enter into the mess, which, by the way, every single one of us has these knots in our lives. We do. Every single one of us has these knots in our lives. And so now that we understand that, we understand the people, we understand the gentleness piece, which by the way, would you want someone to come into your life with a knife if you have sin? Like they find out you have sin and they're like, or if they come in with this gentle mending, right? Which, which one would you want to be a part of? I'm sure the latter. And so now that we know that, now that we understand why this is so important, we can go back and we can look at this idea of trespass, right? It says that if anyone is caught in any transgression, right? So the idea, here's the question, what is this transgression? What is the sin? What is Paul talking about? Now, there's a lot of different sins, um, and it's kind of a weird way to talk about this, but there is. There's a lot of different sins that the Bible classifies, uh, quantifies, characterizes, all that stuff. And some of those sins, um, well, we know that all sin, right, because we all are sinners, we all fall short of the glory of God. So each sin, however weighty or not weighty, causes us to fall short of God's glory, right? So it's all equal in that sense, but because different sins have different like ramifications, they require different types of responses. And there are certain sins in the Bible that require us to deal with those sins a little differently, right, and a little bit more significantly. That's not what's happening here in this text. I think what Paul is talking about is a very specific sin. He's got this specific sin in mind. And so when something happens between you and a brother, if they sin against you, you sin against them, right, what we don't think of is like, gosh, like they just generally sinned against me. No, we think of this is what they did, this is what they said, this is how they did it, right? And we begin to think in very specifics. And Paul, I think in this context, is talking about a very specific type of sin. But he doesn't just leave it at that. He qualifies this with the word any to say that really it could be any sin that happens, any sin. If any person is caught in any type of specific transgression, guess what? We restore them in a spirit of gentleness, right? right? That's, that's super important for us to understand, right? Because when we think about what people are going to find in our lives, as they open up the door in our lives, what are they going to come face to face with? What kind of sins are, excuse me, are there? We know that some of our sins um, are just totally unintentional. We have gobs and gobs and gobs of unintentional sin in our life. It's, whether it's a cultural blind spot or a personal blind spot, there's just lots of it there. It really is. Sometimes we have sin in our life that's very intentional, and we know it, and it grieves us, and it pains us, and we are repentant of it, and we want to be apart from that. We want to move away from that. Sometimes we have sin in our life that we know is a sin, and we lie about it. We say, ah, that's not a sin. I don't have that problem in my life, knowing full well that we do. We lie about it. And sometimes, 
Sometimes we're actually arrogant enough to think that even though we have sin in our life, we think that's just my closet. There's no sin in there. It's not even sin. Like we're so blind to it. We're like, that's not even sin. Right? Do you, do, you see, do you see the difference between these? Right? And when we open up the door, we go, what are we going to find? And if you're engaging in, in a community in a very intentional way, you're going to come into this moment with people. And how you handle it then is what makes the difference. And none of us do this perfectly. Uh, I'm a competitor by nature. I was a baseball player growing up, loved playing baseball, and uh, still love to play softball. Um, you could probably ask people who play softball with me, have you seen Seth Sin on the softball field? Probably, right? Because, because I'm a competitor and because that does come out. I don't, I don't like it. I don't, I don't, that's not a good thing, right? But if you're engaging with people, you will eventually come face to face with people's sins. And sometimes that sin is shallow and sometimes it's deep and sometimes it's really easy to talk about and sometimes it's really hard to talk about. Sometimes it's totally taboo. It's the, it's maybe it's the things that nobody uh, wants to talk about or the things that, that people don't even know how to talk about, like so addiction to pornography, substance abuse, gender orientation, same-sex attraction. Wow, I don't, I don't know how to handle that, sometimes we say, and we just don't know. It's taboo, right? And yet, it doesn't remove it. It's still there. And sometimes it's just anger, violence, pride, right? All of these types of things that are behind these doors. But if we were to take a step back and say, okay, but like we know that, that sin exists in the church. Sin is rampant in the church just as much as it's, it's rampant in the world, right? It really is. But if we were to take a step back and push pause, we would remind ourselves to say there is a right way, there's a good way of going about handling this sin, and there are also some bad ways. The good way is to enter in with a gentle mending in these sins. Gentle mending, right? That's the good way. But what? What's like the, the not so good way? What's the not so good way? Okay? If we take a look at this in, in context, actually, uh, we were in 6.1, but if you go back to verse 26 in chapter 5, here's what he says. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Okay, so the idea of conceited here is this idea that it's like my view of myself is just too big. And we all do this at times. We, all of us do this. We have an over-inflated like, view of ourself. And we think that, that we deserve renown and, and honor and glory when in reality we don't. And sometimes you see this and you see it in people and, and you go, wow, there's something wrong here. Like it's just off. There's this something that's not quite right in this, this, in this distinction. Right? And what Paul says is that this oftentimes, this conceitedness can come out in two different ways. He talks about a public way and a private way. And the public way is this idea of provoking. Okay? And so um, there's this historian, Jewish historian, his name is Josephus, a long time ago. He wrote history about the Jewish people. He wrote, he used this word, about um, Goliath. Remember the story of Goliath? Right? When Goliath enters onto the scene and he challenges and provokes the Israelites and his mightiness, ah, beat me. Right? And that did not go well for Goliath, by the way, if you don't remember that story. Right? That's this idea of provoking. Right? Our conceitedness can come out in this idea of open publicness like in that. But there's also a privateness because you go, man, that's not me. I don't, I don't do that. I don't think about that. Um, but there's also a private piece to that. And he says that it's in this word envy. You're like, what is envy? Envy, 
I learned this in seminary in one of my counseling classes. I always thought this was fascinating. Envy is the fear of never attaining that which you hope. Fear is, is, the, is the, or envy is the fear of never attaining that which you hope. And you go, how in the world is that connected to conceit? Here's why. Because if all I do is I sit in my private in spaces and then I begin to imagine and create this imaginary world where I have everything that I want, everything that I could possibly want in this world, guess what? Now I am a big deal and I am self-righteous. And I've now become the conceited person. Even though it's not public, it's private. Do you see the difference? Right? This is, this is challenging, right? And what happens even, even in this is the, Paul even uses the word um, uh, one anothering. And so he says, like, can, this, it's kind of like this idea of imagining. Can you imagine entering into a church where one another, what you're experiencing as you enter through the, the foyer, as you enter through, you find people provoking or you find out that people are envying? Does that sound like a healthy community? No. It doesn't. And by the way, this is a very poor foundation for handling sin in the church. Because if you enter into that type of space and then all of a sudden sin becomes known, guess what? It's like throwing gasoline on the fire and it just it goes back and forth and it lights it up. And it's harder, more difficult, more challenging, right? It's a very poor place to be. But what I love about this text and I think this is so important because this is the encouraging piece of, of verse 26. What Paul says is, let us not become. He doesn't say this is who you are. He doesn't say you're a lost cause. He doesn't say this is your identity. What he says is, don't get there. Don't let yourself become that kind of a community where you're conceited and provoking and envying one another. Right? Don't. Don't be that group of people, right? Which is why, in context, if you go back even one more verse to verse 25, this is where the Spirit enters in. This is why it's so important that the Holy Spirit be a part of our personal walk with Jesus, right? Because you look at verse 25, and what does he say? He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The idea of keeping in step um, can mean this idea of military. And so like when like a military commander says, get in line, you're like, you know, ten hut or however that works, right? Right? We do that. But this is not that. This is far more pers- personal, far more relational. What he's saying is that when the Holy Spirit takes a step as he's leading you, your response is to follow right behind and to walk with and to keep in step because he's the one who's helping us not become these types of people. It's super, super important. So Paul ends this first portion. What he's doing is he's saying, this is my commitment to you or this is our commitment to you. So if you are caught in a transgression, if you're caught in a sin or a specific sin, here's what we want you to know, which again, by the way, all of us have, okay? So we're not singling. All of us have that. But if you are caught in that, here's our commitment to you. We will enter in and we will gently mend. We will not enter in with conceitedness. We will not enter in with arrogance. We will not enter in with self-righteousness. We will not enter in with force against your volition. What we will do is we'll enter in with gentleness, right? That's our commitment to you. But guess what? Paul knows that we as people, <laughs> you're asking people with sin to help deal with other people's sin. Do you feel like there's, a, there's, feel like there's, there's some problems there? There's potentially going to be some problems there, right? Like just because we're called the shepherd doesn't mean we're not sheep, <laughs> 
right? And we have these problems. And so look at this. Uh, in, at the end of chapter uh, 6, verse 1, he says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. And so this is where Paul, he shifts from the plural of everybody else to the singular of you, like to me. He's saying, this is, this is not just my commitment to you, this is my commitment to myself. And my commitment to myself is just as important, if not more important, than my commitment to you. And what he does, he says that there's this temptation that exists here. Well, what are the temptations? What are the temptations in this type of a thing? Well, one might be this, is that you open up the door in somebody's life, and guess what? You're like, wow, I did not expect that. Shut the door. I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe one temptation is, as you open up the door, you go, man, that's wrong, and I'm going to I'm going to pull you out, and I'm going to tug a war with you and get you out of that. Maybe it's you take a flashlight and you expose it, and you say, hey, everybody, look at this. Look at what's going on in this person's life. Wow, that's bad. Maybe it's different. Maybe you're tempted when you open up that door, you go, wow, I've struggled with that. And you know what? I'd rather have that too. So I'm just going gonna, gonna to join you. And we feel drawn into the sin. All of those are possible. All of those are likely scenarios in which temptation actually works in these moments. right? And any of those are equally plausible and equally powerful, equally dangerous. But here's the deal. I think what Paul's talking about specifically in this text is the idea of self-righteousness because he's connecting it to the idea of conce- of conceit. And so really, sometimes, I think what happens is that we open up the door And whether we say it or not, our first thought is, thank God I'm not like that person. Thank you, God, I am not like him. Right? And then all of a sudden, these words of Jesus begin to ring true in our minds and our hearts when Jesus talks about the speck in the other person's eye and the log in my own eye. Right? And we remember that in order to remove the smack, I need to remove the log in my own eye. If you want to take something, if you want to address sin in somebody else's life, guess what? You better first address the sin in your own life. It's so, so, so important. Right? So spiritual people, these, these people that Paul is calling to the front are the people who mend with gentleness, people who understand the gospel, who mend with gentleness. And so my commitment to you or my commitment to me is just as important, if not more important, than my commitment to you because I need to understand where I'm coming from. And we'll talk about that more uh, in a second. So he goes from you to me, right? My commitment to you, uh, my commitment to me, and then he goes to my commitment or our commitment together as a we, right? This collective group of people, okay? So what does he say in, in chapter 6, verse 2? He says, bear one another's, one another's burdens, okay? Bear another's, one another's burdens. There's that same word right there as we saw back in, in verse 26 of chapter 25, right? And so what Paul is doing is he's, he's, he's completing this contrast between the church where there's full of conceit and there's provoking and envying one another, right? There's that church or there's the church that bears one another's burdens. You see the difference? What's he saying? What's he talking about? To bear one of those burdens does not mean, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying enter into people's lives, take their rocks, put them in your your backpack and make them your own. Because when we do that, right, we create this savior complex, and it's about me fixing other people. And it almost creates codependency, right? Because then all of a sudden we get caught up in their life decisions, and we, ah, 
but it, uh, it's hard for me. We can't do that. That's the Lord's work and the Lord's work alone. I learned long ago this lesson, this, this, this phrase from my dad, which was just so powerful for me, and he said this, and maybe it'll be helpful for you. He said, I am responsible to people, but not for people, which means that I am responsible to enter in with a gentle mending and, I, and how I use my words and how I love on you and how, I, and how I gravitate to your brokenness, I am responsible for those things and how I do all of that towards you. But whatever your decisions are, are your decisions. They are not mine in the same way that my decisions are not yours, right? Do you understand? Right? That's what's happening here. He's saying is that bearing one another's burdens is about entering in and being a part of the process of gentle mending. That is the process. And guess what? Here's what I love is that when you do this, when we do this as a church, guess what happens? We fulfill the law of Christ, right? That's awesome, right? Isn't that what we aspire to be? Isn't that what we should aspire towards, fulfilling the law of Christ? His teachings, his commandments, right? His lifestyle, especially the law of love. What we're talking about is the gospel, When we do this, when we enter in with gentle mending, guess what we're doing? We're making Jesus a reality in this world. How awesome is that? What a privilege and an honor and an exciting thing that we get to be a part of. So is that how this ends? Is it my commitment to you, my commitment to me, and and our commitment to we? Is that where this ends? That would be a nice, easy, tidy, tidy little thing, wouldn't it? But no, that's not where Paul stops. He's got three more verses. And he goes back to not you, not we, he goes back to me. Because what Paul knows is my disposition, my propensity, my proclivity to sin is so great that if I'm going to ever consider being in the sin of another person, I need to have full awareness of who I am in my own sin, right? He goes back to me. Check this out, verses three through five. It says, for if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, for then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. I want to give you three really very simple, quick things as we wrap this up. And as we think about these things for us to be processing, the first one is this. Paul says, uh, know yourself. Because pride grows when we do not fully understand the sin in our lives. When we do not fully understand ourselves, pride really grows. And it becomes this bloated self, this self-righteousness attitude, right? This is a big deal, right? We think, we look at other people and we go, wow, you're a mess. But I'm, I'm not nearly as much of a mess as you are. That's the lie. Wrong not true, right? That's not the way that it works. And we begin to think that we're too important to help people. In fact, the the New Living Translation uh, translates this verse this way. It says, if you think that you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself, okay? Know yourself, know yourself. Number two, um, he says, uh, test your own work. And this is from verse four, test your own work. How many of you guys like apples? It's kind of a strange question, right? Um, How many of you guys like oranges? 
Great, okay, great, here's the deal. Um, let's just, just imagine for a second that Apple represents a certain sin in somebody's life. And so when you open up the door and you find, behind that door, you find an apple. And see, so what we end up doing is that we play the game <laughs> apples to apples in this moment. Because what we do is we look at their sin and we begin to automatically take inventory of our own sin. And we think, gosh, do I have any apples behind my door? No, I don't. What immediately happens? Inflated view of myself. I don't have apples in my life. You know the, the word uh, in, in verse 4 when he says test your work? That's uh, a singular word. It's not plural. It's, it's singular, and it's meant to, I think, encompass the entire realm of all of your work from the day that you are born until the day that you die. All of your works, Right? Test them, know them to be true. Because what Paul is saying in this moment is that, Seth, you may not have apples in your life, but guess what? You do have oranges in your life. You may not have oranges in your life, but you do have pears. I don't know why it's a fruit theme. We can just keep going, right? It could be any type of food. It doesn't matter what it is, but we tend to play the comparison game and we think that I am better than another person because I don't have the same sin. And if you go back to the tackle box idea, right, maybe this will maybe clear it up, okay? So as you open up your tackle box, here's the irony of this situation. It's kind of funny. It's kind of funny, but here's the irony. If you're taking inventory of somebody else's mess and entanglement and you want to know if you have the same mess, guess what you have to do? You have to filter through all of the other knots, in the bottom of your tackle box. And when you get to that point and you go, man, I don't have this, woohoo! I don't have that knot. But guess what? You have a tackle box full of knots. We're on the same playing field, aren't we? We're in the same playing field. That is who we are. Don't think too highly of yourself. If you think that you're more spiritual than another person, guess what? You don't understand the gospel. It's not the way the gospel works, right? It's just true. And so what Paul is doing is he's discouraging this idea uh, of this congratulations or self-congratulations that ultimately depends on your comparison with other people. We are called to examine our own works in light of the gospel and God's grace. That's how I examine my works. So test your own work. And the last one, your third one is this, is remember your load. And here's, here's the deal. Here's what it is. This is a future tense verse, a verb. And so what he's doing is he's pointing to the, to the future. And he's ultimately, I think, referring to the day of judgment. And this is a sobering idea. It's very sobering. So just hang on with me for a moment. But there will be a day when every single one of us will be in front of Jesus. And we will have to give account for every single word, every single thought, every single whatever action in front of him. And when you get to that moment, there's not going to be anybody in line that you can compare yourself to. Because what's in your bag is in your bag alone. That's, that's hard. It's sobering. But guess what? It's okay. <laughs> because of this. Right? Because of the cross. You are never going to be more loved in your life than you are right now. Whether it's at that moment or this moment, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you will never be more loved than you are right now because of this, because of the cross, because of the person and the works of Jesus Christ. And that's incredible. And your identity is not rooted, not even for a fraction, not even the tiniest piece of your identity is rooted in what you can achieve or what you can do or what you don't do. 
It has everything to do with the person and the works of Jesus on our behalf. But here's the reality. When it comes to today, yours and my ability to enter into the sin of the church and enter into each other's lives is dependent on how much we understand our own sin. Because if I don't understand the gospel, and if the gospel hasn't met me in my, the depth of my brokenness, when I enter into somebody else's life, I am not bringing the gospel with me. And that's, that's significant. And so Paul ends with these three things. It's very important, very challenging. Know yourself. Test your own work. Remember your load. My commitment to you. My commitment to myself. Our commitment together. But again, my commitment to me. You see, me is twice in that category. Twice, two out of the four are me. And so what's most important in this is my understanding of my own sin, my own self, and the way that God's grace, love, truth meets me where I'm at. And that's what I can give to other people. Some of you guys know uh, that we have a dog named Kenai who's a husky, uh, and uh, I've been letting Kenai out, or trying to let her out the back door to let her go to the bathroom, uh, and she, as soon as I open up the sliding door, she gets to the edge, and then she tucks her tail, and she runs to the basement. And I'm like, what is going on? What is happening? And I finally figure out, it's the smoke. You see, for us as adults, we know that those fires, as, as those are dangerous for the people there, and we pray for them, but they are hundreds and hundreds of miles away. From us. And the danger to us is not imminent that way, other than breathing, breathing quality, air quality, right? That danger is not imminent. But Kena doesn't know that. She sells smoke and she tucks tail and she goes. She, she smells the warning signs. Guys, I think the same thing can be true of a community of people that we enter through the doors of a church and we can smell the smoke. If we are conceited, provoking, and envying each other, or if we are a community, there's quite the opposite, that people enter in, and instead of smoke, it's like the fragrance of flowers. We enter in, and what we sense is this people deeply, genuinely cares for people and people who want to gently mend the brokenness in our nets, right? That's, that's the church that we want to be. We want to be a people who are fulfilling the law of Christ, that's, that's Salem. That's what we aspire to be. That's an incredible, incredible, incredible opportunity.